turning to Exodus chapter 3. So if you join me in your copy of God's Word, we're going to be going to Exodus chapter 3 today. Summer is a special time for all sorts of ministries that we get to be a part of. You know, one of those was VBS and another the trip to Alaska. I'm sure some of you saw the slideshow of the smiling faces of the kids and VBS. And I'm thankful to God for the faith that you have in him that you expressed in love and the willingness to serve in that way, to host that VBS here and to show Christ's love to these kids and to, to see all of the joy that's involved in that, and to also think about how there will be a greater joy in heaven when we get to see how the Lord used all of that service for the glory of his name, for the salvation and discipleship of little ones. I'm also thankful to God for the sacrificial love which we express together because of the hope that we have in Jesus and because of that hope, we want other people to be fellow sharers in that hope, which is why we partner together in giving and going and praying for the ministry at Cochrane Hills Bible Camp in Alaska. I want you to know that our fellowship in this endeavor was a success because Christ was proclaimed. Christ was proclaimed to high schoolers who live in various villages throughout interior Alaska where often there is no church, no light, and much darkness. But in that place, Jesus Christ was preached. Jesus, the God who cares about them and saves people like them, was preached. Jesus, who calls people to repentance from sin and faith to him, was preached. Jesus, who died and was raised to save and raise the spiritually dead to do life in him was preached. The Jesus who takes the selfish and prideful and makes them sacrificial servants was preached. The Jesus who takes the confused and abused and includes them into his family was preached. And the Jesus who teaches people how to examine how the seed of the gospel has fallen upon the soil of their hearts was preached. And also Christ was lived among these people. Christ was seen in how the staff lived before the campers. Uh, we had a, an amazing staff of people who were the type that when you ask them about their job, what they wanted to talk about was their witness at their job, their godly living before others, their concern for their lost co-workers and family members and uh, how can I more faithfully uh, use my mouth and my speech to honor God this was the type of character of staff that we had there where these Christians were exercising compassion amidst conflict, wisdom amidst foolishness, as is prominent in high schoolers and being of that age, and exercising much forbearance amidst impatience, being people who are others interested amidst those who are self-interested, and having a resting faith in Jesus Christ with having a forest fire just four miles from us, to see that we can trust the God of creation to care for us according to his perfect love and wisdom. 
the campers saw people who read, pray, and live God's word. And when I think about our partnership and ministry and all of these things, I think about why is it that we did that? You know, why did we spend a huge amount of money just to minister to 40-something kids in Alaska? It's because we know that God is like that. We know that in his love he gives, that he's generous in the giving of his grace, that he's willing to cheerfully spend all sorts of money so that he can make himself known in the bush of Alaska. He's even willing to give his own son for the sake of undeserving sinners like ourselves. Why did some of us go? Why did we go all the way to Alaska to minister Christ? Well, it's because you know that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know the joy of self-denial and sacrifice is the lightest and happiest burden that you ever carry in this life. Why did we fellowship and giving and going for the gospel of God in Alaska? Well, how we responded to that call of ministry in Alaska was an answer to the question, what is God like? If you believe that he seeks and saves the lost, you'll live like that. If you believe that he was a suffering servant who died to give his life for others, you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after him. What is God like? How you answer that question determines everything about how you live. And it's one thing to answer that question with words, and it's another to answer it with your life. And the only way that our lives are ever able to faithfully serve God is be, by being prepared in the school of who he is. And this is what's happening in Exodus chapter 3. God is preparing Moses to be his servant by teaching him who he is. Before anyone called of God is sent by God, they must be prepared in the presence of God. So please join me as we start working through Exodus chapter 3 together in verses 1 through 6. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold... The bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look. So God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I want you to recall Moses' background and amidst these current circumstances. You know, remember that Moses was delivered to be a deliverer, but so far he was a failed deliverer. 
he sought to deliver his Hebrew brothers by killing an Egyptian, but in doing so, he acted in his own strength and his own timing and according to his own way. And he found himself rejected by his own brothers and his life being sought by the reigning Pharaoh and the necessity to flee to the land of Midian. But in this place, there was a little bit of improvement in his deliverance ministry where he approved he proved to be more of a deliverer than he was. He delivered some shepherdess sisters from some bully shepherds and got himself a nice supper and a wife. Things were looking up, but not as they should yet. After Moses delivered these sisters, they said, an Egyptian delivered us. Not a Hebrew, not a son of Israel, an Egyptian delivered us. Moses wasn't one with his own people yet. Moses was a sojourner in a foreign land everywhere he went. And at this point, almost 40 years have passed, but Moses' own memory of his failures probably didn't. But Moses' failures wouldn't disrupt God's faithfulness of God doing things in his own strength, in his own timing, and according to his own way. God heard the groaning of the sons of Israel. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew their suffering and his promised salvation for them. And God would be faithful to save his suffering people. And he would do so through a shepherd deliverer, whom he would prepare in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God would prepare and train Moses. The wilderness is where God is accustomed to train, to test, to refine, and to prove. It's the place where he trains us to develop trust in him. The place where he tests us in order to bless us. The place where he refines us to greater faith in his faithfulness. And where he proves that our faith is real and that he's really with us. And God has a way of taking his servant from the wilderness to the mountain, in this case Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also known as Sinai. The original hearers of this text, the Israelites who would hear this preached to them by Moses in the wilderness, they would have likely recognized that where Moses started is where we started, and where God revealed himself to Moses is where he revealed himself to us. It would demonstrate a corporate solidarity between Moses and and Israel, one representing the many, a baptism into Moses. And it is God's pattern for the wilderness to precede the mountain where God appears and reveal himself, for a valley to lead to the place of vision, the place where God appears and makes himself known. And here's how God appeared. The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire, from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Who is this angel of Yahweh? Well, verse 4 clarifies when it says, Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, and God called to him. The angel of Yahweh is God, the God who appears to draw to himself one that was drawn out of the waters of death to be used to draw others to him to a similar ark 
of salvation. And concerning Moses' preparation for his future evangelistic mission, the number one thing that Moses needed to know was God. And here at this unconsumed burning bush, God reveals some things about himself to Moses. Well, what is it that's revealed about God from the burning bush? There's two primary attributes about God that are revealed from this bush. The first one is that God is self-existent, and the second that God is self-sustaining. Think about how Moses didn't start this fire, and Moses didn't sustain this fire either. Moses didn't start this fire, which taught him that God is self-existent. God is not like the Egyptian gods of Moses' education in Pharaoh's house, whose starting point was the evil imaginations of men. God doesn't derive his life from anything outside of himself. The whole world could wake up as atheists tomorrow, and it wouldn't change anything about God's existence whatsoever. No one can start him nor stop him. He does not need and cannot need anything outside of himself because he is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. You notice of this fire also that Moses didn't sustain this fire. Moses wasn't asked to throw another bush on the fire or another log on the fire. God isn't like the false Egyptian gods with batteries not included, needing a man to sustain their imaginary existence. God is the God of batteries included yet not consumed. He is self-sustaining. God's life can't end. It can't weaken and it can't be consumed. God wasn't waiting around for Moses to get his plan started. And he wouldn't be depending on Moses for his plan to be sustained either. God didn't need Moses' presence for anything. But Moses would need God's presence for everything. And certainly we see here that God is present with Moses. God is the self-existent self-sustaining, living and present God. And he is the holy God who gives a holy calling. At the burning bush, God is teaching Moses that he is the holy God of a holy calling. God called Moses in a unique way, just as he called Abraham, Abraham, and Jacob, Jacob. He called Moses, Moses. Why the distinct double call? Well, to communicate that God wants the same kind of transforming relationship with Moses which he had with Abraham, a man turned from earthly sojourner to heavenly citizen, a man turned from faithless to faithful to the point that he was willing to sacrifice even his own son. This was to communicate that God wants the same kind of transforming relationship with Moses which he had with Jacob a man who fought against God until God fought for him a man who was a nobody to whom God said do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation God wants the kind of a relationship which he had with the patriarchs with Moses and the sons of Israel God wants a man whose life is a living burnt sacrifice to God God wants a nation which is totally dedicated to him alone. 
God wants a man who has a relationship to God like we do through the new covenant of hearts regenerated to trust and obey all of God's holy will. How do you approach a God who appears like this? How do you approach a holy God? Moses couldn't approach God however he wanted because God is a holy God. Mere curiosity wouldn't permit Moses to approach the burning bush. A desire for comfort, the comfort of a warm fire on a cool desert night wouldn't permit him to approach either. You can't approach a holy God however you want. Seeking to satisfy curiosity or comfort will be met with correction. You must approach him in the way that he instructs you. Remove your sandals. This is a simple yet profound command. And often the way we approach God is through simple obedience. How did you prepare to approach God and worship today? Did you suppose that you could approach him however you wanted? Or did you ask, well, what kind of attitude is God interested in? What kind of worship does he want? What kind of music does God like? What kind of things does he want me to pray about? What kind of things does he want me to speak about to others in conversation? What kind of sermon does God want to hear? Often simple questions like that lead to simple obedience. But we must understand who he is before we can understand how to live for him. He is the holy God of a holy calling. And that's what made the ground which Moses stood on holy ground, because God set apart that ground to reveal who he is. And God, in revealing who he is further, he said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of covenant relationship. He is the God whose covenants frame and forward history. He is the God whose covenants mediate his redemptive plan. He is the God who is faithful to his creation purpose of making himself known. He is the God who is faithful to his covenant promise to make Israel into a nation and to bless all nations through them. And his promise didn't stop with Abraham, it didn't stop with Isaac, it didn't stop with Jacob, and it wouldn't stop with Moses either. He is the God of covenant relationship and cannot ever be unfaithful to his covenant promises, even if his people are unfaithful at times. Now, before you get too impressed with God claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want you to remember that he is the God of the deeply flawed. He is the God of Abraham, the scaredy cat, Isaac, the self-indulgent, and Jacob, the schemer. He is the God who called them into the unknown. He is the God who kept his promises despite seemingly impossible odds. He is the God who didn't forsake those who have tried and failed. He is the God who takes the most unlikely and unpromising lives and transforms them to display his greatness. Abraham, the man of faith, Isaac, the child of promise, Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel. But what about Moses and Israel? 
Is there any hope for a failed deliverer like Moses? Any hope for an enslaved nation like Israel? And shouldn't God be ashamed to associate with such people? Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Scripture teaches us that God is the God of the deeply flawed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Israel, and us, who desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared for us a city, a whole city for us who were deeply flawed but received a holy call from a holy God to make us his holy people. But how can Abraham live in a city if he died thousands of years ago. Notice that God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. God is the God of the living. He is the God who raises the dead. He is the God of resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus made this point to the Sadducees who deny that there is erection in Luke 20 when he said to them that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead but of the living for all live to him. Abraham believed in the resurrection concerning his son Isaac when he told his servants before the almost sacrifice of his son, his only son, when he said, I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. Joseph believed in the resurrection when he said at the end of Genesis, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. Can the dead dry bones of Joseph get up and walk into the promised land? Can the good as dead sons of Israel walk out of exile into citizenship of another kingdom? God is going to keep his promise to redeem, even if it means that he's going to have to raise the dead to do it. God is the God of the living. He is the God of life who rescues out of the land of death. To Moses and Israel at this point, Egypt looked like a tomb. But God would convert it into a womb where a new nation would be born. And Israel's deliverance would become a picture of resurrection for all time. Because when God calls the dead, they must rise up and walk. Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. And look at verses 7 through 10 together. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh. And so you shall bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. We learn here of God that he sees, hears, and knows everything. God had seen the affliction of his people. And notice that God refers to them as my people. His relationship pre-existed their existence. He loved them before they were born. He loved them before they were his people officially. Because it's relational love that drives God's salvation plan. He foreordained everything happening in Exodus to display the greatness of his love for his people. And the situation couldn't be any different than what he told Abraham in Genesis 15. Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions." Israel's suffering wasn't an accident, it was predestined. Their suffering wasn't allowed by God, it was ordained by God. God wasn't responding to a bad situation, he was forwarding exactly what he planned to do. He wasn't taking the lemons of life and making lemonade. God isn't a 911 responder, God is the sovereign over all creation. He was taking his clay and making his vessels for his purpose. Israel's situation couldn't possibly have been any different than what the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will decreed. Divine love put the sons of Israel under Egyptian affliction for 400 years. Divine wisdom knew that this was the best possible thing that could happen so that God could reveal himself to them and to others. Do you think about your own trials like that? God is pleased to bless us with trials, to bless us with knowing him and making him known, and to make known what is written about God in verse 8. I have come down to deliver. God is the God who delivers, and he delivers from and to, from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up, from that land to a good and spacious land. God's deliverance, just, God's deliverance doesn't leave his people where they were at. God's deliverance is vertical and horizontal. It's from down to up, from out to in, from dead to him to alive in him. And God is pleased to call people to this salvation by sending a person. Because God is also the God who sends. To Moses he said, I will send you to Pharaoh. This is the beginning of Moses' great commission. And you might recall how in the great commission passage read for us today in Matthew 28 that the disciples were on a mountain. Jesus appears to them, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
And at this point on this mountain where God appeared, Moses did not worship but doubted. He had some hesitations about evangelism, which I'm sure that you can relate to. We're going to pick up on seeing that in verse 11, Exodus 3:11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers who has sent me to you, and they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt. And you all will say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not give you permission to go, except by a strong hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wondrous deeds, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Notice first Moses' initial hesitation about evangelism. Who am I that I should go? You see here that the problem with Moses is that he's self-focused and not God-focused. He needed reassurance of who was with him. Yes, he was inadequate, but God is adequate. He was uncertain about himself, but he needed to be certain in God. So the solution is that God disciples Moses. He disciples him by saying, certainly I will be with you. And in this, he begins explaining the divine name to Moses, that God is the with you God. He is the present God. God's middle name is with, Emmanuel, God with us. And it makes little difference who the servant is or what their abilities are if God Almighty is present. 
It's about who he is and his ability. God disciples Moses to shift his focus from who Moses is to the God who will be with him. Evangelism is not about who you are. It's about who is with you. When we seek to witness our mighty God to another person, we're not to be looking to ourselves, but to our God. And we shouldn't retort to God with, well, who am I? But rather to say, who is God and who is it that's with me? We shouldn't say, I don't think that I can. But we should say, I know that he can. God doesn't call us because we're able to do something that he needs. God doesn't call us because of our adequacy. And we don't inform him of something that he didn't know when we say, well, God, I don't think that I'm up to it. In Christianity, weakness is the new strength. Insufficiency is the new sufficiency. Inadequacy is the new adequacy. It's not about who we are, but who he is. It's not about our name, but it's about his name. It's not about the scent, but the sender. And evangelistic success is not dependent on us, but rather the one who is with us. And God announces to Moses a sign to him that he's going to give on this mountain in the future to teach him of his future grace, to strengthen Moses' faith in that future moment, and to teach him that the Exodus will make worshiping God possible, and that it will evoke trust in God's ability to carry out his plan. And when that sign is done serving its purpose, it will read, God is faithful. And it's in that moment in that future time that God will under or that Moses will understand that he should be looking to God and not to himself. And note these words that God said, "You shall serve God at this mountain." He's communicating for Moses to say to the sons of Israel, "You're not going to serve Pharaoh anymore. You're going to serve me. You're not going to sacrifice for Pharaoh anymore. You're going to sacrifice for me." You won't worship Pharaoh in fear anymore. You're going to worship me and fear me alone. And what Moses experiences at this mountain, Israel is also going to experience. They're going to experience going from Pharaoh's kingship to God's kingship. Which makes sense of Moses' next question. If they're going to worship God on this mountain, then what is his name. This is Moses' second hesitation about evangelism. What if they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And how many of you have had a similar hesitation when it comes to witnessing to somebody? And what, what if they ask me a question that I don't know how to answer? Well, in this ancient culture, this asking what is his name doesn't mean what is his title, or what does his name sound like? Name equals nature. The question is more akin to asking, what is he like? What revelation have you received from him about him? And here is the answer given. Here is God's name by God's self-revelation. He says, I am who I am. 
I am has sent me to you. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now that's a long name that reveals more than perhaps first meets the eye. In fact, volumes of books have been written explaining all that can be learned from such profound words. And we would expect such from a God who is so great. In fact, these few words are what the whole Bible is about. The revealing of God's name, the revealing of who God is, what God is like. And of this name, God says, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. This is important. God wants his name to be known and remembered. And you see within this name that God reveals his name as Yahweh. Some of you most likely see that as Lord in all caps in your Bible. But you also see Lord in all caps and sometimes you see Lord not in all caps. Those are two different words. Lord in all caps equals this word Yahweh. And Lord that's not in all caps is translated from another word which is Adonai. These are two different words with two different meanings. Yahweh is God's covenant name, and Lord is a title, meaning master. Yahweh probably isn't as unfamiliar to your ears as you might think. As we sing this morning together, hallelujah. This is Yah, or Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh. We're saying hallelujah, Yahweh. We're saying Praise Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal name. And what this teaches us is that God is relational. Uh, he doesn't invite people to just call him by a title. He invites us to know him by name. Because he's the God of covenant relationship. He's the relational God who makes himself known personally. Bible translations like the Legacy Standard Bible have reintroduced God's name back into the Old Testament to give you a window into what was originally written. And this provides a greater precision in translation. It gives a greater intensity of seeing how personal God truly is. And it brings clarity to what God has revealed in the Hebrew text. Significant about this word Yahweh is that it derives from the verb to be and reading through the Hebrew text where it's translated I will be with you what it says there is Yahweh with you when he says I am who I am it says Yahweh who Yahweh you see this is the verb to be so when he says I am that's translating the name Yahweh his name is derived from the verb to be because he is who he is uh, he will be who he will be this is communicated in the epistle to the Hebrews as he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John translated this name in Revelation by saying he is the one who is, who was, and is to come. His name communicates what we learn from the burning bush, that God is self-existent, that he's self-sustaining, that his life is self-deriving, ongoing, and never-ending. In the Gospels, when Jesus reveals himself in the I am statements, he's saying, 
I'm Yahweh. And this explains the development of the New Testament authors in translating Yahweh as Lord. Why is Yahweh translated Lord in the New Testament? Well, in a culture that was propagandized with the words, Caesar is Lord, it made it clear that Jesus alone is Lord. There isn't another. There's no competitors. There's nobody else in this category besides Jesus. Which then raises the question, well, if Jesus has the title Lord, then who is Yahweh? Jesus' answer is, I am. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. He is, I am. He is Yahweh. And Jesus further reveals God's name in Matthew 28 when he gives us the answer to the question of somebody were to ask, well, who sent you? He says, well, the name that you're to immerse everybody else into is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yahweh is less about how you pronounce a word, and it's more of revealing what God is like. It's not about pronunciation, but revelation. It's about what God reveals about himself in his revelation, his self-revelation, from the burning bush to Jesus, who is the light of the world. Maintaining God's personal covenant name in the Old Testament helps us to see this shift happening in the New Testament, and it helps us to discover what God wants us to know about who he is. Well, what else is revealed about God through revealing his name to Moses in this text? Well, my endeavor in part is impossible. I could not tell you everything that is revealed in this economy of words, but I'm going to make a feeble attempt at preaching to you what God communicates about himself from this text. God communicates that he is the one who is with, that he is present, and he does this to give Moses confidence and hope, to give him confidence that God is at work and he's always been at work, and that he will be with you. You have hope now and hope in the future. I'm going to be with you to help and to deliver. It teaches us that God is self-revealing, and that God is self-defining. He is in a category of his own, and you don't define him. Only he defies, defines him, and he defines everything else in existence. In fact, you can't define him without committing idolatry. He is who he is, and he cannot be manipulated. He is personal, but he can't be personalized. He is self-defining, and he is the eternal God of time. He is the God of the past. As he said to Moses, I'm the God of your fathers. He's the God of the future, the one who his name is to be known forever from generation to generation. He's the God of history who is to recite this history to the elders of Israel and that he's going to be the God who is self-defining and then defines who they, who they are and why they exist. And Moses will bring the elders of Israel to the praise of who God is and what he has been doing and what he will be doing as the present God, who when he says that he'll be there, he'll be there. God reveals that he's also sovereign. He has a right to do what he wants with what is his, and he promises to bring out of the affliction which he ordained. But when you think about that, well, since God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do, well, does that make Moses's ministry unnecessary? 
And if God's going, why, why involve Moses in the difficulty of trying to get this guy going and get him on task? Well, does this make Moses' ministry unnecessary or does it make it mandatory? This makes Moses' ministry mandatory. It has to go according to God's plan. And God's plan is Moses is the guy. But it also means that God's plan is guaranteed. Nobody can stop it. Everything's going to happen right on time, exactly how God wants it to happen. And people like Moses, people like us, can't mess it up. Because God is unchangeable. He's the unchangeable God and he cares. And he's not going to change in his attribute of being the merciful, caring God. He's not going to change in his activities of all of his covenant promises. Uh, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can trust him. He will be who he will be. And God is the speaking God. And everything in all of, all of existence centers around his word. Everything comes from his word, through his word, and to his word. And God makes himself known as the God who makes himself known, even to everybody, to Egypt, to Israel, and to the nations, to those whom he is going to deliver and those to whom he is going to condemn. He is the revealer of himself and his will. He is the God who makes known his missionary heart. He is the God who makes known that he is an evangelist. He is the God who makes known that he is a discipler of his people. He is the God who makes himself known as the judge of all the world. He is the God who makes himself known as Savior, and there is no other. This phrase, I am who I am, sets up for the rest of the book of Exodus. You might remember that the Hebrew title of the book of Exodus is actually the word names. This whole book is about the names who are about the name. This whole book is about the revealing of who God is and what he is like. Exodus is primarily focused on revealing what I am means so that you will believe and not perish. As Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you know God the way that he wants you to know him? Do you know him as he has revealed himself in scripture? And do you explain God the way that he wants you to explain him? God also reveals about himself that his salvation is through judgment. The way that God demonstrates his care for his people is salvation through judgment. Moses was to communicate to the elders of Israel God's covenant faithfulness to care about what has been done to them in Egypt and that he's going to give back to them what was taken from them. He will tell them of the certain hope that God will bring them up from there. He's going to give them the land that he promised to give them. And God even tells Moses exactly how they're going to respond to. They will listen to you. Moses would also communicate to the elders of Israel a very bold move to go three days outside of Pharaoh's land, outside of Pharaoh's jurisdiction, to sacrifice to Yahweh our God and not to Pharaoh who was understood to be the God of gods within that culture. The sovereign God tells him exactly what will happen. 
I know that the king of Egypt will not give you permission to go except by a strong hand. Knowing this ahead of time, you would expect Moses, when Pharaoh first refuses, to go, oh, everything is going exactly according to plan. He figures that out later. God promises to break Pharaoh's hard hand with his mighty hand and magnificently display his love for his people. And more than this, when all of this stuff goes down, he says, the Egyptians are going to favor you more than they favor Pharaoh, and they're going to give you their stuff. The last words we read there, it says, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Interestingly here, that word plunder is translated from the same word deliver. Because when God brings about his salvation deliverance, some are plundered and others are delivered. You can't separate the idea of plundering from deliverance when you talk about God's salvation. Because when God delivers, he also destroys. We must not neglect that idea of judgment, that it's inseparable from God's salvation deliverance. We often tend to focus when we think on God's salvation on the deliverance aspect to the neglect of the judgment aspect. But when God sa saves, he says, I'm also going to make recompense for what was lost. I'm going to give back to you everything that was taken. And I'm not going to just destroy your enemies. I'm going to destroy who you were. I'm going to break the power of sin. I'm not just going to cancel the sin debt, but I'm going to totally change your life. You're going to have a new life in a new land. Because when God saves, both deliverance and destruction happen. His salvation is through judgment. He will deliver into new life and destroy the old life. He will deliver to a new master and destroy the old master. He will deliver into a new land and destroy the old land. He will deliver into a new family and destroy all of their enemies. What you believe about God will determine everything about how you live. And as we see in this text, the call of God begins with being in his presence before you are sent out to serve him. You need to learn to dwell on his name before you do something in his name. More than anything in life, you need to know God's name. You need to know what God is like. You need to know how he reveals himself in his word. And knowing what God is like will solve 10,000 practical problems that you might be fooled into dealing with in your own strength. Because you've been prepared for ministry from the God who calls and sends in his presence. We are prepared to live for him in his presence. And lastly, I want you to think about how God reveals himself through fire throughout history. God revealed himself to Moses through that burning bush at Sinai. God would reveal himself to Israel at that same fiery mountain at Sinai. He would then reveal himself to the nations through a pillar of fire that would go before Israel that everybody could see that those people were about that that they were following. 
he also is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who said, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus also commissioned a people to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the revealed name, which he further reveals is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just as he promised to be with Moses, he has promised us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And here's what happens with that fire that burns yet is not consumed in Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We learn here that we, the church, carry the unconsumable torch of the revelation of God. With the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses from doing a VBS in Meadow Vista to doing a Bible camp in Alaska and even to the ends of the earth, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and who knows what the last word of the book of Acts is? Unhindered. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered. The unconsumable flame burns on. Let's close in prayer as the music team comes forward. God, you are unlike anything that we know. You are unique and in a category of your own. You are holy, and your sovereignty gives us confidence because you are with us. And seeing you work out your plan throughout history gives us hope that you will be with us as you promised. It gives us boldness because we see that your work is invincible. Even evil powers like Pharaoh in Egypt can't stop it. And it gives us a hunger to know you more because we have tasted and see that you are good. And it gives us a zeal to make you known because you are conforming our hearts to be like your heart. We believe these things and ask that you would help our unbelief. We face a task that is unfinished in making you known which brings us to come to you and to pray for help in this endeavor. But it also reminds us that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You promised and you were able. You will be faithful. Your kingdom will come and it will be done as you have taught us to request in prayer. And so we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. Amen.